Welcome to Bethany Community Church again, and please uh, turn your Bibles to Exodus 19, Exodus 19, and uh, welcoming to those uh, of you who are visiting. Um, one of the benefits, visiting either here in person or uh, we're doing a live stream on Facebook Live, and so you know if you're watching on Facebook Live, go ahead and pour another cup of coffee or something, get comfortable. This is a fun series that we're in right now. If you're not part of our church regularly, it's, it's maybe a little bit of a difficult uh, series to, to enter into, but we're, uh, we're glad you're here, thankful that you're here, uh, thankful for this facility. You know, I, I know a lot of churches had str- struggles with the ice in the parking lot, but one of the benefits of being in a community center is they're, they're keeping that thing going, so uh, grateful to be here this morning. We're in Exodus 19, and we're also going to be participating in the Lord's Supper this, this morning, and so I would encourage you as we're talking about this uh, idea of the Christian and the Old Covenant and Christmas, um, the third part of this, this message, uh, I encourage you to be thinking about Jesus and preparing your heart to celebrate the Lord's Supper as we think about his uh, death for us so that we could be in relationship with God. Just kind of a little bit of a roadmap ahead, we're going to be holding a Christmas Eve service at the church building on Christmas Eve, and so I encourage you to come to that, and we'll be kind of beginning, kind of like the first part of a message that will conclu- that will finish up on Christmas Day, and we'll be having Christmas Day services here next week, and what a what a blessing that we get to uh, celebrate the Lord's birth together on on that day. And uh, it's, it's such a joy to be able to be with you on, on Christmas, and so kind of a special year for us this year. Encourage you to be a part of that. Then on January the 1st, we're going to be doing a little bit of a, a special one Sunday series. And then January the 8th, on January the 8th, we're going to be doing the fourth message of our three-part series on the Christian and the Old Covenant. And that's, that's pastor math. I know that doesn't uh, totally make sense, but uh, we're going to be doing the, the last message of this, this series uh, on uh, the, the 8th, Lord willing. We'll see how that goes. That doesn't sound too confident, does it? We're going to do it. We're going to do it, and uh, if, if the Lord allows. So uh, we're in Exodus, and we've been looking at Exodus 19 and kind of looking at these first six verses, trying to, to talk about the purpose of the law and how, why it was given to the uh, Israelites, and then to think about how we should approach the law. And we're, we're doing that because we believe it's important to lay a foundation before we start going in and talking about the different laws as we go through the rest of Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We want to kind of have a foundation laid. And so we're spending some time doing some heavy lifting uh, these weeks, and hopefully it will we'll, uh, lead to some neat fruit in the coming weeks and months as we look at the rest of the Pentateuch. So if you're there in Exodus 19... If you would stand, if you're able to, in honor of God and his word, read these first six verses from Exodus 19, the section of Exodus dealing with this covenant made with the Israelites. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. Then Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, 
You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You may be seated. May God encourage us uh, through the reading of his word this morning. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, we just echo the words that have already been prayed this morning about our uh, love for you, the the different things that are going on in our our church, our thankfulness to you for those things, and and also just this, this request that you would Open our hearts to understand and and think about your word this morning. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the the third week in this this message as we look at these first six verses of Exodus 19. We've we've talked about what's happening there as they begin this covenant. I I had this very elaborate, um, hilarious emotionally cathartic story that I was going to tell to begin, but we're running out of time here, so I'm going to skip that, but just know it was very good, and um, I, I, think that you're, I think that you're already there in terms of wanting to hear this. I, we're at the third week of this. I think you see the value of what we're talking about. I've been very encouraged, actually, by the way. I, I thought this would be a series that I just needed to get through and kind of laid the foundation, then we just kind of moved on to things that were more exciting, but I have gotten so many emails and texts and phone calls over the last week, and I haven't been able to get back to everyone. I apologize for that, but I've been encouraged by how, how you're thinking, and, and this is something that's exciting because I, I think the motivation is that we love God, we love his words, so we want to be obedient to it. Um, on Tuesday, my study day, I'd get, uh, it's kind of funny, the, the variety of responses I was getting. Remember, we, we talked about the spectrum of how people approach how Christians might approach the law and see its applicability today, the relationship to it today. And I was getting messages from people all over the spectrum. Like I, I literally would get one message saying, hey, why don't you watch this video on the law and kind of a kind of more perspective that it has continuing binding obligation to the believer. And then, then, you know, just right after that, a message about, hey, you know, I want you to think about this and how the law doesn't have a place in the life. It was just kind of a very interesting week. And honestly, uh, I've, I've learned and gleaned some things from all the perspectives, all the perspectives of those who would hold to the gospel. There's some nuancing that's, that I think is, has entered into my approach as I, as I glean from fellow brothers and sisters who have sometimes some differing interpretations than I do, but I think love the Lord love his word and want to be obedient to him and to his word and want to love him. And so it's helped me to see some things from from some different perspectives. We're going through the laws in the coming months, and the question we're going to be asking ourselves as we come to each passage is, how is the character of God revealed in this passage? How does it point us to the person of Jesus Christ? How do we see him revealed, and how do we apply it to our lives? And uh, hopefully that's going to be encouraging to you. There are some questions that we've been asking ourselves. The first question we asked, we asked, where are we and where are we going? We talked about where we are in the book of Exodus. And by the way, I'm not going to go through all these questions this morning and we encourage you, if you're able to and need to, to kind of go back and, 
and uh, listen to or watch some of the other things or look at notes from others uh, on, that answer these questions. The uh, second question we answered uh, and asked was, what does the word law even mean as we encounter it in the Old and the New Testament? We asked uh, a third question, what are some of the different approaches to understanding the relationship between the Christian and the Old Covenant? We asked, what's the purpose of the law? And then we came to a fifth question, and we began it last week, and we're going to continue to look at it this week and a little bit on the 8th. The fifth question was this, what are some principles to help us understand and apply the Mosaic Law and the Old Covenant? So what are some principles that will help us as we think about this section of Scripture and kind of started laying out some principles. One, we said the first thing to remember is that the law is God's word. As we encounter this Old Testament law, we're encountering God's word. As we begin chapter 20 on January, whatever date that will be, the 15th or whatever, that doesn't, does that work? Yeah. Um, As we encounter the beginning, look at Exodus 20 that day, we're going to see that it begins, you know, this is what the Lord said. These are, these are God's words. 2 Timothy chapter 3, whenever Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God. All scripture includes, and perhaps is even in the forefront of Paul's mind as he talks about it being all scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. That includes what God says here in his law. A third principle is that the law, not only is the law God's word, uh, a second principle is that the law did not bring about salvation. The law did not bring about salvation. Romans chapter 4, Paul writes, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. How did salvation come about? It didn't come about through the law. It came about through the righteousness of faith. And we've talked about that before. The, The law didn't bring about salvation. So the law... It's God's word. The law did not bring about salvation. A third principle that we've discussed, the law was given to a specific people at a specific time. The law was given to a specific people at a specific time. And remember, we kind of talked about this this framework. Okay, there's a chronology, and God begins the relationship with his people through faith. We see it, the writer of Hebrews talks about Cain and Abel and how Cain was, was, was declared righteous by faith. We see in the book of uh, Galatians, Paul laying out that argument, Abraham is justified by faith before the law comes. And so the law, though, was given to a specific people at a specific time. And I showed this chart uh, last week, this idea that, and this is from a, a guy named Douglas Moo, there's a, an eternal moral law of God. God and his character doesn't change. God is who he is. God is a God who loves righteousness. And yet, the application of his righteousness to a specific people at a specific time, the application might be different than for another people. So, the eternal, there's God and his eternal moral law. And then you have the Mosaic law, the application of that law for Israel. And that, that law, the Mosaic law, contains both God's eternal moral law and some temporarily limited commands. And we'll talk about how to distinguish those in, in a few weeks. But then also, we are under the law of Christ. That's the church. And so God's eternal moral law is applied to us now and in the church in a different way. Not, not completely different, but somewhat different. We'll talk about how that distinction is made. Remember I gave the illustration last week of my two daughters. and said, you know, imagine my 
15-year-old Hannah was hearing me give instructions to my 10-year-old daughter, Ellie. I might tell Ellie, hey, Ellie, you know, I is your father who loves you so much, and, uh, you know, you're the, you know, I am your father of wisdom, and here are some instructions for you, and give her some, some advice about how to clean her room, and some advice about how she should relate to her brothers. My older daughter will understand that that instruction is not given to her, it's given to her sister, but she'll also understand, hey, there's some things I can glean from that. Some things about my dad, some things about his desire for his daughters that I can glean from listening to what he says to my sister. Someone came up to me in church, after church last week and said, Daniel, um, I, really, if that, I really like that illustration of your daughters if it's biblical. You know, I don't know, I'm still thinking through it and uh, appreciate that candor. But here's a fourth principle. The law, the law proclaims the gospel and is fulfilled by Christ. The law proclaims the gospel and is fulfilled by Christ. We looked at Romans chapter 3, verse 21 last week. And listen to what Paul says. Paul says, The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And then it says, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, the, the, the story of how we can be declared righteous by God as sinners is, is uh, now manifested apart from the law. We don't have to go to the law to find it. We don't have to go to the law to, in order to be sanctified, to continue in righteousness. But the law and the prophets point to it. They point to the gospel. They point to the story of how we can achieve and receive, rather, the righteousness of God. What happens as we come to the law? As you and I come to the law... We, we see what God revealed to Israel. And what did God reveal to Israel? What, what could a Jew who had received the law understand about God and himself or herself as they read the law? They would understand that, that they had a need. They would understand the reality of sin. The psalmist says in Psalm 143, verse 2, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. How did the psalmist know it? Through God's revelation and his word and his law. Psalm 51.3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Also, the Jew could approach the law, they could see their need. And then this is, this is also so critical for us to understand. The Jew in the law finds that God is the only source of righteousness. That God is the one who provides salvation. The Isaiah says in Isaiah 45 verse 25, In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall Glory. How does a person receive God's righteousness? In him. Not through works of the law. David's descendant in Jeremiah 23, 6, the, the Messiah. Jeremiah writes this about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. In the law, a person can come to it and say, I am insufficient. I don't have the resources in myself to be found acceptable to God. And in the law, a person can find the revelation that points to Jesus Christ, to the Messiah, to the one who is righteous. Can find that God alone is righteous and gives righteousness. There's a need, a profound need, that the Jew would have been made aware of through the law, 
and a profound realization that there is no one else to whom they can turn. I've shared before stories about how I'm not exactly the most handy person in the world when it comes to the, the home and the car. This last week I was trying to list out some projects and kind of each project I listed I thought, oh boy, I don't know if I can do that. And then, oh boy, I don't know, you know, just kind of a sense of, okay, I need to, need to learn. Now my son, uh, he is, he's very gifted, so I may uh, be learning from him here in some, some things in the coming weeks. But this this past week, and Whitney said I could share this story. It was actually maybe a couple weeks ago. Whitney, Whitney graciously said I could share this story. Whitney was driving through the uh, Washington Community High School parking lot. And you know how they have these little parking curbs, these little parking blocks. You park your car behind in little lanes, and there's the block. Well, there's, you know, there's block, 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 and then there's kind of a blank space and some yellow lines. And then, so she was going around those, and there was one last parking curb she didn't see, and she, and she ran over it. I've heard many people have done this. She runs over it, and then she wisely stops. But then she gets out of her car, and she realizes that she's stuck. Uh, two of the wheels are on one side of the curb, and two of the wheels are on the other side of the curb, and she can't drive. It's going to scrape the bottom of the, the van, and she's, you know, what happens if I drive over it and bounce? So she, uh, so she calls me. And, and it took me a little while to realize what she was saying had happened to the van. And uh, she goes, so what should I do? And I said, I have no idea. Um, let me Google that for you. But um, there are surprisingly few entries in Google, a few, few websites that come up, van stuck on curb. Uh, it's not something re- readily uh, that, that comes up. So I, I, I called... Uh, I called my mechanic and said, hey, I have a question. Uh, you know, my plan is to build a ramp. Um, what do you think? He goes, eh, that doesn't sound, I know you doesn't sound like a great idea. Um, I said, well, my other plan is to call a tow truck. He said, yeah, why don't, you, why don't you call a tow truck? And we had the, the shortest tow I think this tow truck has ever done. You know, four, four feet, you know. But there's, there's those moments in my life where I, just, I, I literally, I'm in this situation, I don't know what to do. I don't know who to call. I don't know, you know, I, I know I have people that would, would help me if I need it, but I don't know, this just is outside the realm of my thinking of even who I would call to help me here, or what service I would need. And what happens to the, the Israelite through this, this law that's given is there's this recognition, look, there, there's no one else to call. There's, there's no person from whom you can receive righteousness. You have, you have a need for God. As a person comes to the law, they find out their, their profound need for God's righteousness, and they find that they can only be justified by faith. Paul, quoting Habakkuk in Galatians 3, says, It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. No one does the law, and God says, okay, boom, you're declared righteous. And then he quotes Habakkuk, for the righteous shall live by faith. The Old Testament prophets understood that reality. We're not justified, we're not declared righteous by God by obeying these works of the law. We're justified by faith, by by believing God. Now, this is important for us to understand. You say, well, who cares? You know, I, Old Testament, I know now, saved by faith. What, what does it matter if my understanding of the Old Testament is a little off? It's off because your perception of God in the Old Testament is going to affect how you approach him as a, as a New Testament believer. L- let me 
read a little bit from the Chronicles of Narnia. There's, I love the Chronicles of Narnia. I think C.S. Lewis expresses so many valuable truths about our relationship with God through this, this allegorical story. The last story, though, I think he gets some things wrong. If, if I'm reading what he's saying correctly, what he's trying to say. In the last battle, this last story in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a character named Emeth. And Emeth is a Kellerman. He's one of the enemies of the, the people of, of Narnia. And whereas the Narnians worship the true God, Aslan, who is a, a picture of Jesus Christ, the Kellermans worship Tash, this false god. And so this young man, Emeth, has been worshiping this false god. And then at the end of the story, the characters enter this, this paradise-like place, and Emeth is there. And Emeth talks about how he's had a conversation with Aslan, the Christ figure. And li- listen to what he says about what Aslan tells him. And think about what I think Lewis is trying to tell us. So again, Emeth is speaking to people about his interaction with Aslan. He says, I told him, I said, Lord, I'm no son of thine. I'm a servant of Tash. And Aslan answered, Child, all the service you've done to Tash, I account as service done to me. Not because Tash and I are one, but because we're opposites. I take to me the services which you've done to him, for he and I are of such different kinds that no service which is vile can be done to me, and none which is not vile can be done to him. Therefore, if a person swear by Tash, but keep his oath for the oath's sake, it's really by me he's truly sworn, though he know it not. It's I who reward him. If anyone does a cruelty in my name, though he says it's in my name, the name of Aslan, it's really Tash to whom he serves, and by Tash his deed is accepted. And then this, this character, Emmeth, says, but, but I've sought Tash all my days. And Aslan answers, no, unless your desire had been for me, you would not have sought so long and so truly, for all find what they truly seek. Now, here's what I think Lewis is saying. I think he's saying, well, if a person genuinely wants to, to, to serve a God and, and, wants to, and, and, and tries to do good things, there, there's a possibility that they're going to be, be saved, be declared righteous by God, because God's going to say, well, really, you were, you were doing those things to me. In fact, some people, some evangelicals who would hold to a position like this would say, well, look at the Old Testament saint, and here's why this becomes important, right? They said, well, look at the Old Testament Christians. They didn't know about Jesus. They they just had the law, and they were trying to do the laws, and as they did the laws the best they could, they were saved. And maybe some people today can be saved the same way. Now, what's the problem with that? The problem is that's not how they were saved. There were not people in the Old Testament who did the law good enough to get saved. And if we believe that to be true... Not only is it going to affect our view of how people can be saved now, but it's going to affect our view of, of how we approach God now. Because as we have this view, this, this, this misunderstanding about the Old Testament saying, well, the Old Testament saints they had to do these things, and they were able to do these things, and they were able to kind of like show these things to God and say, hey, God, I've, I've done the best I could. God says, okay, okay, you don't know about Jesus yet, so because you did those nice things, I'm going to let you in. We have this misconception now. We say, okay, well, God is a God who wants me to do things for him. He did in the Old Testament. So I know I have Jesus, so I'm good, but I'm going to still have this bucket, and I'm going to try to put some good things in this bucket, and I'm going to take the bucket to God and say, God, look at my, my good works bucket. I know it's not all I need. I need Jesus, but I've also got this bucket. So I got Jesus in the bucket. 
How are we doing? And many of you are living your life trying to fill this, this bucket with things. And as you think about your relationship with God, there's a great sense of weariness and fear because you don't have enough stuff in the bucket yet. In fact, it seems like the bucket has a big hole in the bottom. And the more good things you're putting, it just seems like the things are, are, are filtering through the bucket and you're not being found acceptable to God. Here's, here's the good news for you this morning. The Old Testament saint was never saved by their works. In fact, the, the psalmist, we look at the psalmist, he says, look, if, if, if there were just enough burnt sacrifices I could offer to you, I'd do it. But, but my sin is ever before me. He recognizes I, I, can't, I can't do this on the basis of the law. I can't be declared righteous and just before you on the basis of the law. I, I'm, I'm sunk, I'm toast. Here's, here's the good news for you and me. God calls us not just to repent of, of wickedness. He also calls you and I, through the gospel, to repent of dead works. He calls you and I, through the gospel, not just repent of the, the obvious sin, you know, the murder, the, the lust. He doesn't just say repent of that. He says repent of dead works. Repent of the mentality that you need to pursue me and be found just by me by, by doing these good things. You need to repent of that and place your faith in my son Jesus. And many of us this morning need to repent of our attempt to find God on the basis of good works. That's why understanding the Old Testament can be so helpful for you and for me. In the coming weeks, we are not coming, we are not coming to the Old Testament, weeks and months, yes. We are not coming, just being honest, we are not coming to the law so we can say, maybe because I have Jesus now, I can, I can come to the law and, and do the law better. We are coming to the law, not so we can understand about some different feasts, and not just so we can understand about um, how to, you know, cut our hair or whatever. We're coming to the, the law so we can find Jesus and help us understand who he is in the character of God. The law proclaims the gospel fulfilled by Christ. Here's a, a fifth thing. Very quickly, the law was misunderstood and perverted by the people to whom it was given. The law was misunderstood and perverted by the people to whom it was given. Now, as you look at, at we're going we're gonna to talk more about this again as, as we go forward, but just remember the two diagrams from, from last week that we looked at, and there's a lot of examples we can uh, give just to show this. But we said, okay, what the law proclaims is that we have faith, and this, this faith uh, leads us to a relationship with God, and then there's obedience to the law. But, what happens as Israel continues, and we see this by the, very strongly in the, the first century as Jesus and Paul are reacting with, with the Pharisees, we see that there's this misconception that I could have obedience to the law and combine that with faith, and that would lead to a relationship with God, and that's a wrong understanding. It's a wrong understanding. You know, as a, as a parent, uh, as a parent, sometimes I feel like I am a, a constant rule-giving machine, Right? It's like I tell my children, I say, okay, uh, kids, um, you can have 30 minutes of screen time today or, or, or 30 minutes of computer time or just, you know, 30 minutes. And so uh, it's, it seems like a, a pretty gracious rule. I say, you know, just get your work done, clean your room, and then, you know, just ha enjoy it. And, and, as, and I think, my, what a simple rule. Why have we made life so difficult? And then my children start asking me questions, and I remember why my life is so difficult. Dad, uh, what if we want to combine our screen? Like, what if I want to play a game with my brother? 
can we have an hour? Like 30 minutes plus 30 minutes equals an hour because we're, we're splitting the time. Yeah, I don't, I don't, 45 minutes. Okay, what if I, I just made a new rule. Dad, Dad, what happens if we're, we're playing the computer and it crashes and we have to reboot it? Does that, like, can we pause the time? I don't know. Uh, yes, you can. Dad, what happens if mom comes in and she talks, like, while she's talking, um, we're, not, we're okay with her talking to us, but does that count as time against us? Dad, what if it's Saturday? Like, can, we, can we play first and then clean our rooms later? Dad, what if I wake up at, at midnight, and uh, does that count as the last day or tomorrow? Dad, uh, what if it's 11.45 to 12.15? Um, is that kind of like a no man's land? Dad, what if, Dad, stay with me here. Dad, what if my brother starts cleaning the room during my time, and then during his time, I finish cleaning the room. Do we have to have the room completely clean? Dad, what about his clothes on this side of the room? I just, you're like, you got to be kidding me. you got to be kidding me. Just obey the spirit of the law. Rule-giving machine. Rule-giving machine. The law was misunderstood and perverted by the people. Instead of becoming this, this, this means that pointed them the righteousness of God, it, it revealed to them the nature of their hearts and the fact that their hearts weren't right before God. And you see, that's why you see, I think, for example, in the book, the book of Malachi, what does God say? God says, look, you, you're offering this, this you're, you're obeying the letter of the law, but you're, you're offering these garbage sacrifices. I wish someone would just go and shut the doors to the temple so you wouldn't even bother the law was perverted by the people to whom it was given. Here's the sixth thing. The Christian, and this is, this is going to be the one that uh, I get the most pushback on, I think, and uh, I wish we had time to go all the way through it. Um, we're not going to get all the way through it this morning, perhaps, and, and maybe I just spend some time on the post-Sunday app uh, talking through some more of these things. But, but here's the sixth one. Uh, the Christian is not under the Old Covenant. I think that first statement isn't, isn't too controversial. Yeah, the New Testament. But therefore, I would, I would say, the conclusion I would reach is, is that we're not, under the, we're not bound by the Mosaic Law. In other words, the Mosaic Law is for the Old Covenant, and now we're under the New Covenant and not bound by the Mosaic Law. L- let me do this, kind of my... My thinking is, I'm going to give you some foundational scripture and argument. Then, and maybe I'll get more to this next week, then I'll talk about some people who disagree with what I'm saying and then kind of conclude with a couple other scriptures and really, on the 8th, go through the book of Galatians a little bit. But here's my foundational argument for why I'm saying we're not under the Mosaic Law. It's things like this. We already read Romans 3.21, that the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. In other words... I don't need the law for salvation or sanctification. That's not how I grow in righteousness. Romans 7, 6, we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Romans 10, 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Galatians 2, 19, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I think that's what uh, Jake read earlier. Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand, there, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is ob- obligated to keep the whole law, for you are led by the Spirit, you who are not under the law. 
Ephesians 2, 14, 15, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he, that's Jesus, might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. What is it? We're under this new law in Christ. The dividing wall of hostility has been abolished. Now here's, here, here's what I think. In fact, turn to 1 Corinthians 9. I think 1 Corinthians 9. Now, people who disagree would have some different interpretations of what they think that Paul is talking about there. Some say, well, I think he's talking about a misapplication of the law, but that's reading into the text, in my opinion. You're, you're trying to, to insert some things that aren't actually in the text. Now, we can disagree on those things, but, but that's those passages, and there's many, I've paid, there are more passages I could have put in there for the sake of time. Those are some major ones, but the point of those passages is that the, the, the believer is not bound by the Mosaic law. Not part of the old covenant, part of a new covenant. Mosaic law is part of that old covenant. In Christ, we're under the law of Christ. Now here's, here's a passage in 1 Corinthians 9 that I think expresses this well and expresses Paul's relationship to the law well. Because Paul, as he talks about the law, he'll, be, he'll say something about the law and then he'll give a caveat. Not in the law, not saying the law is bad, and then go on. So this is a, a passage that I think expresses his really ambivalence toward the law. The law for Paul is a tool for the gospel, but it's not a necessary tool, and the tool isn't the gospel itself. Paul, for, for Paul, the law is a, a cultural phenomenon, and, and he's somewhat ambivalent about the law. And, and, and here's... Here's where we see it. He's, he's talking about the gospel and, and his passion for the gospel and how he lays down his rights for the sake of the gospel. And then he comes to verse 19. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. And listen to this. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, and I believe he's talking there about the Mosaic law, to say that it means some other type of law, I, th I think is reading into the text. It's, it's clear that he's talking about Jews who are living underneath this Mosaic law. He says, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law. And why did he do it? That I might win those under the law. So he encounters a, a Jew, and a, this Jew is living underneath the Mosaic law. Fine, I'll... I'll Avoid certain foods, I'll observe certain things, I'll pay for the Nazarite vows of other people. It's, the, the law, isn't, the law isn't, isn't a problem for me. Now, what is Paul going to do? Paul is going to oppose those who teach that, that observing the laws is, is part of the gospel. So if a person says you have to be circumcised in order to become a Christian, Paul's going to, man, he is going to stand up against that. But if a person wants to not eat something, eat something, observe a day, he doesn't care, go for it, right? I'll, I'll do that. I'll become part of that culture so that I can win those to the gospel who are under that. But then listen, listen to what else he says in verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. So he's speaking there of the Gentiles. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. 
that I might win those outside the law. And let me show you that, that diagram one more time. What is he talking about here? He's, he's talking about those who are uh, the Gentiles. And he's saying, look, it doesn't mean, when I say I'm not part of the law, it doesn't mean I'm not under this eternal moral law of God. It's not like I can just go out and, and live this lawless lifestyle. No, I recognize I'm under the law of God. I'm under the law of Christ. I'm not this, this lawless uh, anti-law guy. But I, I'm not under the Mosaic law. I, I don't have to observe all those things. He says, I did this. I, I, I don't have to obey the Mosaic law. I can live differently when I'm around Gentiles. And why do I do it? That I might win those outside the law. Do, do you see what Paul's point is? His passion is the gospel. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, but that I might share with them in the blessing. Turn over to Matthew 5. There, there are some who say, well, hold on, Daniel. Man, Jesus seems to speak of of the observance of the law, the necessity of the law. There are some who would say um, we need to come to the Mosaic law to find God's moral law. And, and th- some would say, you know, if, if we're going to have just laws, the Mosaic laws were just, and if they were just for them, we need to try to apply them to our civil uh, government today. And I would say, no, I, I don't think that's what we find in Scripture. The Mosaic Law is not the only place you find God's moral law. And you can certainly go there and find God's moral law, his eternal moral law, and, and apply those principles in a civil government. That doesn't mean we're under the Mosaic Law. Here in Matthew 5, look at verse 17. Listen to what Jesus says. And, and this, this is a passage that some who want to continue to observe the Mosaic Law and, and live a certain dietary restrictions or observance of feasts or, or even people who are enemies of, of Christianity would, would come to Matthew 5 and say, see, this is what you need to do. You need to be under the law. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 5, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Mark that. That's going to be an important part to come back to in just a moment. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now what is Jesus saying there? I would encourage you on your own sometime to do a search in the Gospel of Matthew on the word fulfill. When Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've, come to, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, what was he saying? As you encounter that word fulfill in the book of Matthew, you see Matthew again and again talking about something that was prophesied in the Old Testament through the prophets and now has been fulfilled in Jesus. And, and the word fulfilled there means, means completed. So for example, Matthew chapter 1, describing the birth of Jesus by Mary, says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew chapter 2, as they go to Egypt, uh, Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Uh, verse 23, and he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus says, I have to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. 
Matthew chapter 8, 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken of the prophet Isaiah. He took his, our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew chapter 12, uh, this was to fulfill, verse 17, what was spoken of the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. Over and over again, as you go through the book of Matthew, Matthew draws back on the Old Testament prophecies and said, okay, what, you, what I just told you about, what just happened in Jesus' life, fulfilled, completed, accomplished what this Old Testament prophet prophesied. And so Jesus, as he's saying, I've come to fulfill the law, he's not saying, I've come to to set up the law. He's saying, this, me, I'm I'm the fulfillment, I'm the accomplishment of that to which the law pointed. Now, this this is so important to understand. So every law, every instruction, I'm not abolishing, I'm not destroying. Why would I? Because those things point to me. I'm the fulfillment, I am the accomplishment of those things. Now, this, this is my impor- opinion of why this is so important for us as Christians. If we get the order wrong, we've completely misunderstood what Jesus is trying to say. In other words, if we say, okay, um, I have Jesus so that I can obey the law, that's, that's backwards thinking. It's the exact opposite point that I think Jesus is making. It's the exact opposite point that Scripture makes The law points to Christ. I don't have Christ so that I can have the righteousness to fulfill the law. I have this law so it can show me my need for Christ, and now it's fulfilled in the person of Christ. Christ is the purpose, the the completion of the law. The law is fulfilled in Jesus is is all that I I need. I don't need to to obey the Mosaic law. And to to say that Christ helps me obey the Mosaic law is to totally miss the whole point of the Mosaic law. The purpose of the Mosaic law was not to, to bind us for eternity. The Mosaic law was this temporary thing given to the people, a tutor, until the Messiah would come. To focus on the law instead of Christ is to get the whole thing backwards. And those who attempt others to force them to live under the law don't understand the purpose of the law, in my opinion. Those who try to force others to live under the law don't understand the time and the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to point us to Christ. And now in Christ, we have life and righteousness and peace. I'm going to ask the men to prepare to pass out the Lord's Supper here. And as they do, I, I, want, I want you to think about that reality. That reality. The, the, the law doesn't exist so that we can be pointed to Christ and then, and then once we have Christ, go back to the law. Either the law under Moses or our own good works. The law is given by God, was given by God to the Israelites to point us to Jesus, fulfilled in Jesus, and now we have him. What I would encourage you to do in these moments in which we're participating in in the Lord's Supper together would be to, of course, repent, ask God for forgiveness to reveal those things in your life in which you're not pursuing righteousness. But but instead of saying, and God, I promised you X, and I promised you Y, and I promised you Z, to say, "And, and, and God, my desire is to turn now in this moment to your son Jesus and to find him altogether lovely. I'm turning God not just from sin, that's clearly sin, I'm turning from those good deeds that I've been relying upon to be found right before you. And so now as I, as I hold this, this cup, as I hold the bread, I'm thinking about the death of your son Jesus 
and his all-sufficient work for me, and I'm trusting in him and him alone, not myself, for not just salvation, but for continued sanctification in this Christian life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for the gospel, the good news of your son Jesus found in the law, found in your word. Help us to trust in him and in him alone by your grace. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.